All right, so we're going to go into our time right now of reading our scripture reading for today. So if you could stand up with me for the reading of God's word, we will be reading in John 5, um, and it'll be verses 18 through 29. So this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these uh, will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have not done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. You may be seated. Uh, good morning, church family. My name is uh, Reed Kappel. Uh, I serve as the campus pastor or Olathe campus of Christ Community. It's a joy to be here with you at Shawnee. I was here a few weeks ago, and so if I didn't have the chance to meet you or say hi, I'd love the chance to do so. Come find me after the service. Uh, I'd love to, to get to know you. Um, what I'd like to do, I just want to pray for our time as we continue in worship together, as we hear from God's word that Sarah read for us. Um, let's just take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the teaching of his word. Father in heaven, you are the God of, of revelation and truth. You are an outpouring God who, who has made himself known to us, Lord, that, and that is a beautiful mystery and miracle in and of itself that the unfathomable, transcendent God has drawn so near to us to know us and to be known by us. Lord, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would grant us the ability to not only know and to believe, but to behold and delight in the truth that Jesus is the Son of God the Father. And so, Lord Jesus, would you be praised and delighted in us? Would we seek to align every aspect of our lives to you and to your will? And so, Lord, I ask that in this time, what we know not would you teach us, what we see not would you show us, who we are not would you make us by the power of your spirit so that we might reflect the beauty and the glory of King King Jesus in all of life. And so may this time be honoring to you and edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have actually enlisted the help uh, of a friend of ours here at the Shawnee campus uh, to help me with my sermon introduction. So uh, where is my friend Nora? Is Nora here? Nora, come on up. Would you guys please give Nora a hand? Right up here, Nora. There you are. There you are. 
Now, um, I've, I've, uh, Nora knows that I'm doing this, so like, it wasn't a total surprise, but I want to introduce Nora to you, and we'll see if I, if I accurately portray who you are. So this is, uh, this is Nora McDonald, and you are 14 years old. Have I got that right? Actually, I'm Nora Simmons, and I'm uh, 11 years old. Nora Simmons, and you're 11. You're not, for, not a teenager. Okay, I have bad intel. Okay, okay. Uh, let, me, let me try this one. Okay, I believe that you are, you're a very precocious person, so you attend Johnson County Community College, if I'm not mistaken, and you have zero siblings. You're an only child? Uh, no. No, got that wrong, too. Man. I go to Brighton Academy, Brighton. and I have four siblings. Four siblings? Oh, that's, that's much more than zero. That's much more than zero. I wasn't very good at math, but I do know that. Okay, let me try this. Your favorite hobby is archery, and I don't know if you know this about Nora, but her favorite food is fried pickles. That's also something that she loves. Is that, did I get that right? No. Oh, man, uh, I'm striking out here. I'm striking out. Um, my uh, favorite hobby is to act and sing and do musicals, and my favorite food is pizza. Pizza. Man, I should have known that. I was way off. Okay, okay, so now, as you can probably guess, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious about this. I do know Nora. Nora's actually one of my neighbors and, uh, across the street in our neighborhood. So, but here's the thing. Nora, let me ask you this question. If you had the opportunity to introduce yourself to a group of people, would you rather you introduce yourself, or would you rather me introduce yourself moving forward? introduce myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think because, you know, you want to be introduced correctly, right? You don't want some buffoon, hypothetically, uh, saying incorrect things about you because that would lead people to a different conclusion about who you are. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Would you, would you join me in saying thank you to Nora? Well done, Nora. Well done. Thank you. I'll take the microphone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, again, again, obviously we, we knew, I knew what we were doing. I asked Nora to do this in advance. The same thing is true. The reason why Nora would prefer to introduce herself instead of letting me do it is because I don't have the, the exact information, the correct information about her. Because in one sense, it's almost more important what Nora says about who she is. And, and, and the reason I, I do this little, little introduction here is because as we come to our text this morning about Jesus and about how he introduces himself to us, as important as the question is, who do we say that Jesus is? That's an important question, one that Jesus asks his disciples, asks us. More important than the question, who do we say that Jesus is, is the question, who does he say that he is? It, it is right and good for us to have a view and opinion of who Jesus is, but more importantly, we must ask the question, who does Jesus say that he is? Every one of us has an opinion, a perspective, a view of Jesus. Whether you, even if you don't have an opinion, that is an opinion in and of itself about who Jesus is. And, and most people, even in our culture, have a positive association with Jesus, or at least with some of his teachings. We like the idea of, of loving your neighbors, you know, extending forgiveness, serving the poor. We like the idea of what Jesus teaches, but here's the thing, Jesus does not permit us to separate his teaching from who he declares himself to be. That his teaching is wrapped up in his identity as he declares himself in John chapter 5 and elsewhere. And so as we come to this text, a, more, a very important question, even more important than the questions of the origins of the universe, about how the end times will shake out, about the meaning of life, about whether or not the chiefs will be good next year. Like, these are all important questions, right? But more important than these questions are this. Who does Jesus say that he is? 
And it's this question that I want us to explore together in our time as we turn to John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles open, whether paper or electronic, or if you have it all memorized, that's impressive, uh, turn to John chapter 5. And I want us to see the context here. So if you were with us last week, uh, and really up until this week, in John's gospel, what we've seen is Jesus being introduced to us by other people. You know, we've, we've seen the gospel writer John telling us who Jesus is. We've seen John the Baptist telling us who Jesus is. We now come to this very important juncture where Jesus tells us who he is. And, and, and as he gets to this point, there's this mounting tension that has been increasing between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we saw it last week in the, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And, and there was anger and frustration towards Jesus, particularly because he was healing on the Sabbath, which was a rabbinic no-no. It was, it was unlawful for the Jewish people to perform miracles or healings or do anything of that sort on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus kind of adds to that tension by what he says next. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, "'My Father is working until now, and I am working.'" This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So things have escalated pretty significantly to the point that they want him dead. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's as if Jesus is saying, oh, you don't like my, my practices on the Sabbath? What if I told you that your God was my dad? And, and by saying that, he's increasing the tensions and becoming this warranted um, uh, recipient of anger and, and attempts to murder by the religious leaders. And so in this moment, Jesus is making it very clear. Like I said, up until this point, we've only heard what others have said about Jesus. At this juncture, Jesus is now declaring publicly who he is. And he refers to himself as the Son of God the Father. Look with me at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So in these words, Jesus is describing and ascribing to himself the very qualities of Yahweh, of the Creator God. He is ascribing them to himself. When he says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, Jesus is placing himself on the same level as God. And he doubles down on this. He continues. He's not just speaking kind of in generic terms. He's showing, no, the same profile, so to speak, of how God operates is what I do. Jesus says this in verses 21 and following. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so who does Jesus say that he is? He says that he is on the same level of authority and honor and glory as God himself. And it is at this moment where the religious leaders fiercely part ways with Jesus. They have already kind of been um, upset with him about his practices on the Sabbath, but now as he's declaring himself to be God, as the Son of God, the Father, they are parting ways significantly. And if we're honest, this is also where we, and in our culture, in the church and outside the church, where we tend to part ways with Jesus. 
You know, we, we can accept Jesus' teachings up until a point. We accept certain uh, principles that he lays out for us. Uh, if it helps us live a more civil, moral life, if it helps create a more civil society. But the moment Jesus starts telling us what to do and claiming authority ever, over every part of our lives, that's when we push back. We may not push back explicitly, but functionally in the way in which we live out our lives, we don't like the idea of Jesus telling us what to do. And so to kind of bring this first century text into the 21st century, uh, I want us to see how we wrestle with this idea of Jesus' authority. The idea of Jesus as God having complete authority over our lives does not fit into our you-do-you, follow-your-heart, be-true-to-yourself, do-what-makes-you-happy culture. These are the common narratives and, and really gospel truths that we have come to believe almost like unquestionably in our day and age. Be true to yourself, follow your heart, you do you. But the idea of Jesus claiming authority over our lives and having the power to tell us how we are to live for our good, mind you, still doesn't jive well with our culture's obsession and infatuation with what is referred to as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is this term coined by uh, philosopher Charles Taylor, and, and Taylor used this term to describe this kind of common growing phenomenon in Western modern culture. And in this phenomenon, what, what expressive individualism is, is this, uh, this tendency in modern culture to essentially find our own meaning by giving objective validation to our subjective experiences and desires. In other words, what that means is, is that the way in which we determine what is true, good, right, and beautiful for our lives is based upon my own personal subjective feelings. There's not an objective standard by which I'm measuring my life by or by all of life by, but rather I hold the power to determine what is right, good, true, and beautiful, and you have that same power in and of yourself. But when we operate in this kind of culture, when, when we live in a culture of expressive individualism, what we find is that there is no foundation upon, underneath us upon which we build our lives. And neither is there an objective standard or ideal above us that guides our lives. Instead, we have reserved the right and power to determine what is ultimately true and what is ultimately good. Instead of allowing God to be the objective standard of right, good, true, and beautiful, we have placed ourselves at the center of our own universes determining what is good, what is true, what is beautiful for ourselves. And when you have multiple centers of the universe, things fall apart. When you have multiple centers of the universe trying to operate in harmony, chaos ensues. And so there's no, there's no surprise as to why we see so much division and polarization in the church, outside the church, because we live in a culture where essentially we have functionally believed that we are God that we have the power to determine what is right, true, good, and beautiful. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, listen to how Dr. Carl Truman describes our cultural moment. He says this, modern ethical discourse is chaotic. So our ability to even agree upon what is really right for all people. Modern ethical discourse is chaotic because there's no longer a strong community consensus on the nature of the proper ends of human existence. 
we don't even agree on the basic fundamentals of what it means to be human, of what the good life is. And so because of that, everyone is trying to create their own standards of morality, and it creates chaos. He goes on to say this, if morality is a function of the social conventions of the community, and yet the community lacks consensus on those social conventions, or those social conventions are hotly contested, ethical chaos is the result. That's the world we live in. I mean, we, we don't even have agreement upon what it means to be human. We don't have agreement in our culture on what, what gender is, what marriage is, what justice is, what race or racism is. These fundamental realities that kind of speak to human existence and the human experience, we have no shared consensus or agreement upon it precisely because we have reserved the right to be our own gods. We have reserved the right to determine what is right, true, good, and beautiful for ourselves. And if I'm to be honest, I believe that one of the most pervasive reasons why people walk away from the faith, why people discredit Jesus to begin with, has really nothing to do with the fact that he claimed to perform miracles, that he claimed to be God, that he claimed to rise from the dead. Yes, people object to that, absolutely. But I believe our main objection to Jesus, both as Christians and non-Christians, is that he claims to tell us what to do. That's where we push against Jesus. When he starts to claim ultimate authority over every aspect of our lives, that is when we push against Jesus. When he claims to tell us what to do, it starts to infringe upon our desires and abilities to live our life as we see fit. And while we're, as if you're a Christian, if you're, we, we would not necessarily come to that conclusion. Like, no, 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 I follow Jesus and he tells me what to do. But functionally how we live our lives, we place ourselves at the center, we give ourselves that kind of authority, and we believe that if Jesus begins to tell us how to live, it infringes upon my desire and ability to pursue my authentic self, which is our, go- our culture's gospel message. That the, that the way to salvation and liberation and the good life is for you to identify who you really are and pursue your authentic self with as much energy and gusto as you possibly can. And Jesus is committing our culture's greatest sin in telling us that we don't have the power to determine who and what we truly are. And, and so, so this, is, this has crept into our culture. It is the, the world we swim in. It is the, the, the soup we swim in, so to speak. And what Jesus is telling us is that we do not reserve the right and the power to determine what is right, true, good, and beautiful. We want that power for ourselves. But it is a power that, when held by us, ends up ruining us. Because we were never intended or designed to bear the weight of determining what is right, good, true, and beautiful. When we do, that is a power reserved for God alone. When we try to take that power for ourselves, it ruins us and it ruins others. It is not a power we are intended to hold, and we know it. But instead of maybe questioning that premise, the premise of maybe I shouldn't be the center of my universe, we just continue living in this world of chaos. The band Arcade Fire and their song, Wake Up, I think captures this sentiment in our cultural moment very well with these lyrics. Listen, if the children don't grow up, our bodies get bigger, but our hearts get torn up. We're just a million little gods causing rainstorms, turning every good thing to rust. I guess we'll just have to adjust. I mean, do, do you see, like, like, like we, we're recognizing, like we're all just our own little gods and we're causing these rainstorms and instead of trying to produce a goodness and surrendering to a standard of goodness, we are choosing to be our own God. 
When each of us is our own God, so to speak, when each of us claims the right to determine what is true, good, and beautiful for ourselves, we end up turning good things into rust. Why? Because we were never intended to bear the weight of that kind of power of determining what is true, good, and beautiful. And instead of recognizing that none of us can bear that weight, we would rather stay in a world of rust and just figure out how to adjust to it. We would rather just, like, instead of questioning the premise, hey, should I be the center of my own moral universe? We just kind of continue on and embrace this culture that we're in of chaos without any basic standard of goodness, truth, and beauty to appeal to. Because the idea of an authoritative God who tells us what to do just doesn't fit our style. Several years ago, I remember having a conversation with a dear friend of mine, not a Christian, and he had a lot of questions and objections about the Christian faith, and over a series of, of time, a series of time, we were able to answer many of his questions. I mean, even to the point where, like, like, like fairly satisfactory, and I'm, I'm not bragging or, like, patting myself on the back, but we got to a point where every question he had, every objection, every barrier that was standing in his way, intellectual barrier, if you will, of standing in his way of Jesus, we, we covered and addressed. And so I kind of, like, at that time, I was like, okay, so, Jesus, what do you think, you know? And he, and he basically just said, I just don't want to believe it. That's, that's, that's where it ended. Like, and and I, I don't say that to make this kind of snide comment about my friend, but at the end of the day, the barrier that stood between him and Jesus wasn't an, an intellectual one. He, he simply just did not want Jesus to hold the power of telling him how to live his life. And this is so true of all of us. There's some part of us that really doesn't want to discover what is true, good, and beautiful. We want to determine what is true, good, and beautiful. That, that is the fundamental human problem. We do not want to discover it as though it is out there, created by someone else. We don't want to discover what is true, good, and beautiful. We want to reserve the right to determine what is true, good, and beautiful. And when that is our preference and our posture, chaos ensues because we were never intended to hold that kind of power and authority. I mean, just think about the origins of human sin. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was not simply an act of rebellion like, that's a no-no, I told you not to eat from that tree. The act of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an act of Adam and Eve firing God from his position of determining what is true, good, what is, what is good and evil for all people in all places at all times. What, what we did as broken, fallen humanity was basically said, God, thank you, but no thank you. We will take that power. We will determine what is good and what is evil. And how is that working out for us? That continues to be the problem in our human condition. And rather than admit it, we would just rather adjust as we continue to be millions of little gods causing rainstorms, turning every good thing to rust. This is why the question, who does Jesus say that he is, is more important than who do you say that he is? Who do I say that he is? The question of who do you say that Jesus is must be subservient to the question of who does Jesus say that he is? And so who does Jesus say that he is? He is the Son of God the Father, worthy of all authority, glory, and honor, but he also says that he is the judge of the earth. And so if people didn't part ways with Jesus at this, at, like before this, they definitely part ways with Jesus when he starts talking about himself as the judge of the earth. We do not like the idea of a God of judgment. But Jesus seems to like it because he repeats it several times. L listen to this. In verse 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
And in case the people in the back did not hear, Jesus reiterates it in verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now when we hear this, when we hear this communication, this teaching about God, a God of judgment, our our kind of Western modern um, skin crawls, so to speak. We don't like the idea of a God of judgment. And particularly, just just to be very kind of culturally aware, the idea of objecting to a God of judgment, that's a very Western, modern perspective. The idea of a God of judgment is actually very widely accepted, but we see it as primitive. We see it as cruel. How could there be a God of justice? How could he judge me for who I am? And so we reject this idea that even God could judge us. We, we reject the, the words of the late rapper Tupac, only God can judge me. We don't even listen to Tupac anymore. But, like, but like the point being is that we still don't even see God as having authority to judge us. And so to our modern sensibilities, the notion of a God who stands over us as a judge is absurd precisely because we have placed ourselves at the center of our moral universe. Perhaps not to the degree that we actually think we're God, maybe, maybe for some of us we think that, but at least to the degree that no one else can tell us who we are or how we must live. And so as we reject this idea of a God of judgment, what we're essentially saying is that God does not possess the power and authority to tell me how I should live my life or who I should be. We don't care who Jesus says that he is because not even God can judge us. And to be really careful here, church, this is, that, that's not a word of exhortation to those people out there. This is a word for us as a church to first hear. Do we live our lives in such a way that we functionally tell Jesus, you have some jurisdiction over my life, but not all jurisdiction. You can speak to some aspects of my life, but not all aspects. And so to object to the idea of God as judge is a way of saying that we hold that power, but it's also, it's also a very culturally narrow perspective. Because elsewhere around the world, the idea of a God of judgment goes unquestioned. The idea of a God of judgment in, in broken, hostile, oppressive places of the world, there better be a God of judgment. It's the idea of a God of mercy that is implausible. It's the idea of a God of forgiveness that is hard to wrap minds around. And so when we sit here in our comfortable Western culture and object to the idea of a God of judgment, we have to realize that we are a cultural minority in that perspective, globally speaking. The idea of a God of judgment is actually a hope that, brings, that is brought to many broken, oppressed, impoverished places of the world. Through the Olathe campus, our church, uh, as a church, we partner with the Shira Diocese in Rwanda, uh, led uh, by Bishop Samuel Mugisha. Bishop Sam is a dear friend of ours, and he was with us a few years back, and he shared uh, many things with us, but part of what he shared was his testimony. And and he shared with us how he lost family members and loved ones during the Rwandan genocide in the mid-90s. And as you can imagine, going through something like that, an evil atrocity like the Rwandan genocide, it would cause you to question your faith in God. And it absolutely did that for Bishop Sam. But it was precisely Sam's deep grasp of God's mercy and justice that allowed him and enabled him to seek healing and forgiveness. Without the idea of a God of justice and mercy, there is no hope. We are left to go down a path of either despair or vigilante justice. If there is no God of justice sitting on the throne and on the bench of the courtroom of the universe... It was precisely because Sam first asked the question, who does Jesus say that he is? 
before he answered the question, who do I say that he is? That is what enabled him to forgive and to heal. And so how can we look at things like the Rwandan genocide or the, the war in Ukraine going on right now? How can we look at these things and mock the idea of a God of judgment? There is something deep within us that longs for a God to bring all things to justice, to right all wrongs. How can we even look at evils in our own country and mock the idea of a God of justice? How can we look at the evils of things like abortion on demand or historic and systemic racism or the pernicious sex industry that erodes away not just our spirits, our souls, but our bodies itself? How can we look at these evils and conclude that a God of justice is a laughable concept? Far from taking offense to the idea that Jesus is the judge of the earth, it ought to bring us comfort. That we, we ought to be comforted by the fact that there is a God, there is a judge who has promised to set the world to rights and to make all wrongs right at some point. That in his holiness and love, Jesus is the judge who will right all wrongs. Amen? If he is not who he says he is, then we are in a great deal of pain and hopelessness. To laugh off who Jesus says he is as judge is a privilege granted only to those who know nothing of evil and injustice. And that is something that we are very privileged to experience, largely speaking, in the West. L listen to how Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, so this, this brother knows a thing or two about oppression, injustice, war, and evil. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he captures this sentiment perfectly. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword, or that, that God is not a God of judgment. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. We better hope and pray with every fiber of our being that Jesus is who he says he is. That as the loving son of the father, he is also the righteous judge of the earth and will set the world to rights. If Jesus is not who he says he is, we are profoundly and completely hopeless. But thanks be to God, Jesus is who he says he is. Amen? That he is the son of the father, that he is the righteous judge. And so if Jesus is who he says he is, and particularly if he is who he declares himself to be in verses 23 and 24, I mean the whole thing, but particularly these verses, then we ought to respond as his people properly. Listen to what Jesus says about himself in verses 23 through 24. Whoever, whoever uh, verse 23, oh, that, yeah, sorry, uh, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Jesus is calling us to bring honor to him because he is, in fact, God. He is the authoritative son, the righteous judge, and the giver of eternal life, and thus he is worthy of all honor, praise, and response. Amen? If Jesus is who he says he is, it calls us to respond. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is suggest here are three ways that we can and should respond to Jesus in light of who he says that he is. 
And the first is this, we should consider his claims. And, and, and this applies to all of us, but particularly to those who might be a bit more skeptical about the Christian faith, about if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus. And so if, if that speaks to you or to, to someone you know and love, here's what I want to say. Here's, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that you should leave your questions and objections at the door or suspend any of your concerns and criticism about Christianity. Rather, what I'm saying is this. At least start by asking the question, who does Jesus say that he is? You may have objections to the Christian faith. You may have doubts and, and questions. I, I, I get that. And, and bring them. Invite them to ours as we wrestle and struggle together. But at least begin by asking the question, who does Jesus say that he is? And so if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, let Jesus tell you about Jesus. Let Jesus introduce you to Jesus. Let his words about himself be the basis upon which you decide whether you follow him or not. One of my greatest fears is that so many people walk away from a Jesus that isn't actually the Jesus of Scripture. They walk away from a caricature of Jesus. They walk away from some distorted version of Jesus, some soundbite Jesus that they heard from somebody else. And I want us to make sure that if we are going to reject Jesus, make sure you do it rightly, in the sense that make sure it is Jesus that you're walking away from and not some distorted caricature of him. So often what we walk away from is a distorted version of Christianity, of, of legalism of some kind, or some kind of bigoted culture, instead of seeing the truth of who Jesus is. G.K. Chesterton once said that the Christian ideal has not been found tried and then found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. That's absolutely how, how, how it is when it comes to following Jesus. We walk away from a version of Jesus in our minds that isn't actually matched up with Scripture. So consider his claims. Secondly, and this is just a bit of a more specific application of this, listen to his word. Listen to his word. And this is a response for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. I encourage you to read the Scriptures, to take them seriously to listen to the voice of Jesus through his word. And maybe for you, it's, it's starting in the Gospel of John. Go back and, and read through where we've been in the Gospel of John. Or maybe it's about joining us for the form.life, if you're not familiar with that. It's our daily spiritual uh, pathway where there's opportunities to engage Scripture, practice disciplines. In fact, we have our new Form Life journals that are available today. Feel free to grab one of those for our upcoming series in Ecclesiastes. But this is a great resource as a way to enter in and hear God's Word through His Scriptures more consistently. Another resource would be the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, I highly commend it to you, regardless of your age. The Bible Project speaks to young kids and thoughtful people. It is an incredible resource that gives overviews of books of the Bible, themes, and the Scriptures, a great resource to understand God's Word. But, but again, as I said, this is not just applicable to, to the non-Christian, to the skeptic. The importance of listening to Jesus' word is vital for the Christian because I don't know about you, I have a tendency to make Jesus' voice sound a lot like mine. I don't know if that's, if that's your problem too, but, but Jesus tends to, very conveniently, tends to agree with all the things I agree with. He tends to dislike all the people I dislike. He tends to agree with all of the uh, political and cultural uh, convictions that I have. It's like when we're not careful, the voice of Jesus can be co-opted by some other source in our world, and that we can conflate the voice of Jesus with some news outlet or some partisan perspective or some cultural ideology. If we are not careful, 
to be faithful in hearing the voice of Jesus through his word on a regular basis, we will find ourselves slowly drifting away from his voice and actually find that it's not Jesus that we're following and listening to. I recently went to the eye doctor and had my prescription updated. It was very, very subtle, very subtle prescription change. If I never went to the eye doctor, those small, subtle, almost unnoticeable changes in my prescription over time would result in a distorted vision. If I'm not regularly having my eyes checked and refined, I will find myself seeing things incorrectly in the same way, y'all. If we are not faithful to listening to Jesus' word on a regular basis, not out of some religious duty or obligation, but out of a sense of aligning the entirety of our lives to him, we will find ourselves drifting away from his voice. And so we need to consider his claims. We need to listen to his word. But lastly, we need to enter the life he offers. If we're going to let Jesus tell us who he is, and take seriously his claims, then part of what that means is that we must take seriously his invitation to follow him out of death into life, because that is why he has come. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Church, the reason we take the words of Jesus seriously and first ask the question, who does Jesus say that he is, is because we believe he holds the power over life and death. Amen? That's why we take Jesus seriously. Because there is no other power, there is no other authority that has faced death, that has entered death, and has defeated death than the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I know, I know next week's Easter, but the resurrection power continues to play out in our lives now. As we gather this day and every Sunday, we gather as the people of Jesus who submit and surrender the fullness of our lives to the fullness of who Jesus declares himself to be. We give the totality of our existence to his invitation to consider his claims, to listen to his word, and to enter the life that he offers in his kingdom now and forever. And why do we do that? Because we believe that God the Father, through the power of God the Holy Spirit, has granted God the Son the authority and the power to speak truth. And he has given the Son the power and ability to judge sin. And he has given the Son power and authority to bring life from death. Amen? And by his grace, he offers that life to us now when we repent, when we recognize that we are just a million little gods causing rainstorms, turning every good thing to rust. When we recognize the foolishness of trying to be our own gods and repent and turn to him, he grants us redemption through the life of Christ that we couldn't live, through his death that we should have died, and through his resurrection that he accomplishes for us on our behalf. And so friends, who do you say that Jesus is? My prayer, my hope is that we would all be able to declare who he is based on who he says he is. The loving son of God the Father, the righteous judge who will destroy all evil, and the one who is the giver of life and the defeater of death. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise your name above all names. And we recognize, Lord, on this, on this Palm Sunday, as we remember the time in which you entered Jerusalem, preparing for your enthronement ceremony, we declare you as king. 
the one who has all power and authority, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, extend a severe mercy to us by allowing us to see the futility and the, and the foolishness of our ability to try, our attempts to try to live for ourselves, seeking to be the determiners of true, good, and beautiful for our lives. Lord, would we surrender that and would we fully place our lives, every aspect of our lives, under your good, authoritative, loving, just reign over all things. Lord, remove any and all barriers and impediments that we have created or that others have created that stand in our way of seeing, beholding, and delighting in you so that you might receive all praise and glory and honor. And so, Lord, as we continue in worship, would you make yourself known to us? Would we receive from you your grace and may it empower us to be your people as we leave this place continuing to be your church? We ask that you would do this for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family, as we continue in worship, as we prepare to come to